This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The Radio-Canada Ombudsman dismissed his complaint, but the CRTC did not. Last month, its ruling mentioned how the episode aired just weeks after widespread protests following George Floyd's murder by police. The CRTC said Radio-Canada should have taken steps like not repeating it and providing a clear warning at the beginning of the segment. It asked the broadcaster to give a public written apology. I think that the, the, the CRTC ruling is nuanced is uh, balanced. But now a rebuttal. 50 Radio-Canada journalists and personalities signed a letter. They say they recognize the N-word is charged, but it is only used very rarely and managers should not apologize that the CRTC is attacking freedom of expression. Over the past couple of weeks, there has been mounting outrage over a CRTC decision involving Radio-Canada and a broadcast segment from 2020 in which the N-word was used multiple times as part of a discussion of a book that contains the word in its title. A majority of commissioners, there were two dissents, required the broadcaster to issue an apology and identify measures to address future issues. That decision has sparked cries of censorship and concerns about the CRTC. Given that Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez and the government want to give the CRTC even more power over internet content as part of Bill C-11, the implications extend beyond this case. Monica Auer is the Executive Director of the Forum for Research and Policy and Communications. With decades of experience in and out of the CRTC, few, if any, Canadians are better able to unpack CRTC rules, policies, and operations. She joins me on the podcast to discuss the latest developments, the broader concerns with CRTC governance, and how assurances regarding internet speech safeguards stand up. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Michael, for inviting me. I'm really glad you're taking the time out to join. Uh, As you know, and I suspect many of the listeners to this podcast know, just as Canadians were about to head into the Canada Day long weekend, the CRTC released a decision that has attracted uh, a growing amount of of opposition, most notably in Quebec. That case involves Radio Canada and a broadcast that discussed uh, a French language book, which includes the N-word in its title, The six and a half minute radio segment uses that word four times. And the case itself has now sparked cries of censorship and sowed, I think, some real doubts about the CRTC. You know, for myself, I think the substance of the case is a really hard one. And I can understand uh, how a case can be made, frankly, that Radio Canada didn't handle this particularly appropriately. Um, that said, there are real problems and uh, about how the CRTC, in my view anyway, handled it, handled it as well, uh, where there is simply a lack of discussion around issues like freedom of expression and the Charter. So we've got a lot to talk about. Can you get us started with a, a bit more background on the case and the ruling, which notably includes two dissents? Um, insofar as the document issued by the CRTC is concerned, it basically came out of nowhere. And by that, I mean, there is no record on the CRTC's website of the initiating complaint that triggered the whole problem, problem in the sense that something must be addressed. And 
then we also do not know very much about the people who made this determination. And I'm not thinking that we need to know who they are and, you know, their address so we can go and picket them. Not at all. I'm just wondering, don't we have, shouldn't we know who in fact at the commission is making this specific determination? We know that there are two commissioners who are identified because they each dissented, which means that there must have been three others to outvote them but we don't know who those three other commissioners are. And I should mention for those who, who don't enjoy following the CRTC on a day-to-day -day basis, only CRTC commissioners are entitled to make a decision on behalf of the commission. And they must actually be a majority or a quorum of the commission in order to do so. So you can't just have one commissioner making up his or her mind about a broadcasting issue. You need to have sort of a panel, if you will, of commissioners. And in this case, we only know who two of them are. It would be of some interest, I think, to know about the rest. Unfortunately, the Broadcasting Act does not currently require the CRTC to sign its decisions with the names of the people who made decisions on its behalf. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that the forum has asked Parliament to change the Broadcasting Act when it gets around to changing it through whatever bill. We were at C-10, now we're up to C-11, in order to be more transparent. So we don't know who wrote it, and I should just note as an aside that I asked the CRTC if they could, if they were willing to, to tell me or tell me really any details about what took place when commissioners uh, conducted hearings on this, uh, or when it was at least on as part when it was reviewed, when a decision was made, who was involved, and the response I got was I could file an access to information request, but they could not or would not provide that information. So, so, so as you say, we don't know who specifically wrote the majority. We do, of course, know who wrote the two dissents. Can you talk a bit about um, what those anonymous commissioners had to say in terms from the majority that has now sparked this outcry? So somehow the whole process that the CRTC has has almost always used for offensive content has been set aside for this one issue. If you think back, some of your listeners might remember uh, the radio station Schwa FM that in 2004 had its license not renewed by the commission because of the extremely offensive content it was broadcasting. It held... It, it, it announced that it was going to hear the matter, the issue of the complaints in the renewal. It then put the documentation about the renewal on the public record. You could go to the website and review it, or you could go to the CRTC offices and review it. Then it held a public hearing, which was open to the public. You could then read the transcript of the hearing, and then it issued the decision. So in other words, every part of it was public. In this case, we know nothing, and yet, and yet, the commission had already begun to renew the CBC's licenses. So somehow a two-track process appeared. On the one hand, you had the CRTC and the CBC working on the license renewal of the corporation to the point that several months, some months after the commission received this complaint, it held a public hearing in January 2021 at which it did not raise this complaint. It did not add the complaint to the public record. And it did not address the complaint when it renewed CBC's licenses on June 22nd this year, 
just a week before it issued this document. Okay, so you've got some really questionable or questions at a minimum about the process, how long it took, the secretive nature of it, the fact that it it wasn't brought into sort of the obvious fora of dealing with when it was dealing when CRTC was dealing with the CBC more broadly. I, but before I want to sort of expand on some of those process issues and, and how the CRTC handles those things, though, let's just close the loop on this particular uh, document, as as you keep calling it. Um, so we've got the majority writing, and we don't know who or how many, but simply writing that this failed to meet the high broadcast standards. Did they talk about in any way the you know the freedom of expression issues or the journalist free, journalistic freedoms that that uh, that are quite clearly associated with these kinds of questions you know what role did that play what role did the charter of rights and freedoms play in in their analysis in the majority's analysis the charter played no role at all which is very surprising because as i said the commission has dealt with these kinds of issues in the past very seriously in the case of schwa fm there were at least five pages in a very long decision dealing with the whole concept of the reasonable limits on freedom of expression and to explain that in this particular in that particular case that limit uh, the limit of freedom of expression had been breached here it's the analysis comes down to this is this is a terrible word that should not be used and and it doesn't meet our requirement for high standard programming, but the commission does not explain how the Broadcasting Act's other requirement for journalistic freedom, which is protected not just under the part one of the act, but also specifically in part three of the Broadcasting Act that deals solely with the CBC and twice guarantees its journalistic independence. So somehow the notion that this particular word, which was used in the context of a program to discuss the concepts underlying the book in which the word appeared in the title, it, it was not a, a program aimed at offending people. It was a program aimed at explaining the rationale of the book and, and whether the ideas matter today somehow that context is completely gone. So no discussion of the charter, no discussion of the Broadcasting Act's protection of, of journalistic freedom, no discussion of the CBC's double protection on journalistic uh, professionalism and standards, no meaningful discussion of how the CBC ombudsman dealt with the matter in order to explain what could have happened. We're left with almost nothing to to put our finger on and to understand the interplay. And that matters because other broadcasters and other people interested in broadcasting, let's say online, can will want to use this document in order to understand what are the limits to what they do in their programs. Are there limits? What are they? This document doesn't help them understand that. You've highlighted what isn't in the majority, uh, I know, and, and you can, I guess, just expand briefly that the, the dissent really essentially calls out the majority on on precisely what you've just talked about, saying, you know, there there surely must be an analysis and discussion of, of issues such as the Charter of Rights and Freedoms when you're delving into these kinds of questions. There's that, and that is a critical piece. And there's a second very odd aspect of this document that 
the dissent brings up, one of the dissents brings up, and that is that the CRTC's document does not explicitly state that the CBC, that the CBC's program breached the CRTC's regulations. This matters for, it, and it may seem like just a really legalistic, technical, itsy bitsy thing, but it isn't. This is this is the actual legal issue in the Broadcasting Act, and the reason for that is because the CRTC is required to implement Canada's broadcasting policy. Yes. So how does it do that? Well, it's empowered by Parliament to create regulations that operationalize or embody or, if you will, help sculpt what the Act actually represents. So therefore, the broadcasting policy says that programming should be of high standard. And when you turn to the CRTC's programming level rate regulations, it says you shall not broadcast content that is likely to be considered abusive of individuals or groups of people, and then it enumerates the same classes that are in the charter on the basis of race, color, creed, etc. And so the regulations themselves embody and, and make concrete the more philosophical high standard concept in the broadcasting policy. Yet the CRTC majority document does not say that the CBC's program breached that regulation on the broadcast of abusive content. It doesn't say that at all. So how can you say on the one hand that it breached high standard and then ignore the fact that therefore it must have breached the regulation? The reason the breach of the regulation matters is because the Broadcasting Act Sure, we want Section 3 met, but it's up to the CRTC to ensure that the broadcast that the Section 3 policy is met. However, it is an offense that can be prosecuted, and in the past, breaches of regulations were taken to court and prosecuted, and those convicted were fined for breaching the regulations. So it is an offense to breach the regulations, and yet in this document, the CRTC says somewhat casually, yes, the CBC's program is, is clearly a violation of the Broadcasting Act and then does not take the next step to say, and it therefore also breached the regulations so that the corporation has committed an offense under the Broadcasting Act. And the lack of a charter analysis means makes it unclear as to whether the majority even considered those other issues been very careful to call this regularly a document. You haven't called it a decision or a ruling. Uh, can you explain why? Because obviously much of the discussion is, is centered around calling this a, a ruling or a decision, but uh, you haven't. Why is that? Well, because the CRTC has not actually exercised any of its legal authority in this document. It, it, says, it says it is requiring the CBC to do two or three things. And it expects the CRTC to do two or three things. But the Broadcasting Act does not empower the CRTC to set quote-unquote requirements or quote-unquote expectations. The CRTC is expressly and only empowered to issue licenses, suspend licenses, renew licenses, not renew licenses. 
It is also empowered to set conditions of license. It can even, after a certain type of public hearing, issue a mandatory order, which becomes an order of the federal court that, in other words, can be enforced federally. And yet here, it says, well, we require this and we expect that. If the CRTC issues a decision in which it does not actually exercise any of its legal authority, what is that? Is it, I don't want to say it's a decision, a decision announcing that it's not making a decision, but in a way it begins to look almost theatrical or, or mar it's a type of marketing perhaps. As you walk through all the shortcomings in the decision, and frankly, the shortcomings more broadly in CRTC process, it really, for anyone who's been paying attention to Bill C-11 and the expansion of the CRTC's mandate to move into internet-related content and internet streamers, I think, will, will likely set off alarm bells. So why don't we, we touch on, before we wrap, on a, on a few of the broader implications that, that come out of this decision when we start thinking of it, not just in the context of this particular case, but as I say more broadly, you know, obviously much of the, the response has come out of concerns related to content regulation and concerns about that expanded C-11 mandate. Now, the CRTC and the government have, have, I think, worked hard over the last number of months to downplay the notion that they engage in content regulation at all. You know, for example, when Chair Ian Scott before, was appeared before the Heritage Committee, he was asked whether the CRTC ever ever regulated actual broadcast content, you know, what is seen um, or what is said rather than just its distribution. And his answer was no, uh, we don't do that. We don't dictate content, neither what is broadcast nor what is watched. Um, how would you respond to that? Has uh, the CRTC been as hands off with respect to content as the chair suggests? Um, I was I was smiling to myself as you read this because uh, yes the CRTC has a number of jobs but when you look at what it is supposed to do under the Broadcasting Act it's not quite as simple as saying it's just supposed to license broadcasters it's also supposed to implement the section 3 regulatory policy and that policy has a number of different dimensions it has so many dimensions that the Commission has been setting regulations for more than 50 years and enforcing the regulations. For instance, about how much Canadian content broadcasters should broadcast, what types of content broadcasters should broadcast, how much they should spend on it, about its quality. It's perhaps not good enough just to have a newscast if all you do is you read the local uh, what used to be called a newspaper, you actually have to engage reporters who might travel around looking for news. That would be high quality journalism. You have to also ensure that the programming is not just limited to a very narrow range of interests of the broadcaster, but perhaps encompasses the range of interests of the community and people the broadcaster purports to serve or says he's serving. And of course, in general, the programming has to be balanced of high standard. And for newscasts, it actually has to be based on facts rather than, and I, I suppose the popular term now is disinformation or misinformation. But in the old days, we used to say, you can't just lie in the news. You actually have to broadcast facts. And so if you look at, for instance, the radio regulations, which were first drafted in 1986 by, by the commission of that time, and they've been amended. You know, the rules are that you can't broadcast anything that breaks the law, abusive content, obscenity, profanity, 
false news, misleading news. You can't just broadcast somebody being interviewed unless they know they're being interviewed because otherwise the, their behavior might change and they're entitled to know what, what's happening with what they say. You also need to know that if people call in, they should be informed, by the way. You're going to be recorded. You're going to be broadcast. Are you fine with that? Informed consent. So the commission has been regulating that for decades. And for this notion of, of user-generated content, and, and I know former CRTC commissioner uh, Timothy Denton has, has written extensively on that, as you have, Michael, as well, um, the commission has in the past also regulated what you might call user-generated content in the context of broadcasting. So, for instance, in 1988, it was receiving a number of complaints about open-line talk shows. Now, an open line talk show is usually something that you hear on the radio uh, or a podcast, I guess. But it is also, uh, it, 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 it does from time to time happen on TV as well, where you have people calling into a program, TV or radio, and discoursing, you know, conversing with the host. And so the broad, the, because the CRTC was re receiving quite a few complaints in the mid-80s, it finally decided to deal with it by having a policy on open line programming. And the reason it's relevant to our discussions and our, our views today about user-generated content is because the CRTC did not attempt to regulate Canadians. It didn't reach out to each and every Canadian and say, hey, if you call into a show, behave properly. Instead, it regulated, it asked those it regulated and licensed to respect the policy. You know, let's, let's walk through a couple of the other defenses or claims with respect to the CRTC. Another, uh, and I think you, you've really gone, you've, you've touched on it already with your example on open talk radio is that, you know, the mantra was individuals are out platforms are in. And so in other words, individuals are outside of the regulatory scope, uh, but you know, we regulate. And so, and so you should take comfort from that, that they're not going to be regulated. Um, I take it that you don't think that really stands up once you start regulating yeah. either the radio station or the platform in this case. No, I don't think it stands up. First of all, the, the new powers given to the CRTC that would be given to, to the CRTC if the Senate uh, can goes along with Bill C-11, would enable it to do indirectly what it chooses not to do directly because doing it directly would appear to put it offside of the act. And that's a very complicated answer to say, on the one hand, Bill C-11 says effectively, you can't regulate the programs uploaded by users except if you want to. That's really what it's saying. So what I believe I understood the chairperson of the CRTC to say is that we would never regulate programs uploaded by users. And that's fantastic. However, there's no guarantee that the CRTC or a different CRTC chairperson might at some point decide to set conditions or perhaps just say they require or expect intermediaries such as Facebook or TikTok or any other social media platform where people now upload content and ask those intermediaries to please 
use their algorithms to promote programming of high standard. What happens if the CRTC commissioners happen to have meetings with some of the large intermediaries in the same way that, for instance, large conventional broadcasters and telcos currently meet with the CRTC commissioners and senior staff regularly to set out their concerns about whatever. We don't know what is being said behind closed doors in private meetings between the CRTC and those it regulates. We don't know if quid pro quos are being exchanged. Well, we won't we won't get you on the CanCon breach this time, but we'd really like you at the hearing to address one, two, and three. We don't know if those kinds of polite arrangements are taking place. One would hope that they are not. But since these meetings are by nature behind closed doors, and since no transcripts are taken, as I understand it, or published, we have to assume the best case. And it would be fine if, if we could just all assume the best case. We all assume that, that people will remember our birthdays, and when we're small, we hope that the tooth fairy will come and give us something valuable in consideration for our missing tooth. We hope those things. But in reality, we're sometimes disappointed. And when we don't know what's happening, and when we have a quasi-judicial tribunal whose members regularly meet with those it regulates, without a clear understanding of what is being said, I think Canadians have a right to be seriously concerned about the potential prospect that even if the CRTC does not formally announce standards for user-uploaded programs, it may do so quite informally. And we okay. would never know. I, th I think you've managed to scare me even beyond uh, the kinds of concerns I've been expressing for some time about the CRTC as you've walked through all the, the different ways activities take place, um, sort of that are quasi-regulatory in nature that may not fall strictly within the act and, and many of them taking place outside of the public's uh, sort of out of the public public sphere. You know, one last sort of assurance that we've gotten or attempt to assure people about these kinds of concerns is, you know, have no fear. There's a policy direction that's coming. Uh, just pass the bill, give it royal assent. And, and once we do that, we'll come up with a policy direction in which we will direct the CRTC how to act on some of those issues. Um, is that something people should take comfort with? The problem is that um, in terms of policy directions right now, the CRTC is already subject to directions from, we call it the governor and council in the act, but in fact it's cabinet. So every time there, well, every time the cabinet changes, whether it's because of an election or just because the cabinet has been shuffled, there is always the potential to have a new direction issued. Currently, under the 1991 act and also under the 1968 act, cabinet was limited to issuing directions on very general matters. It could not, for instance, tell the CRTC which broadcasters to license or not renew or punish for, for breach, regulatory breaches. Couldn't do that because the act actually prevents that. It says you can only issue a direction on a broad policy matter. C11 completely changes this. C11, through the addition of the innocuous sounding seven sub seven, seven subsection seven of the proposed Broadcasting Act for 2022, 
would allow cabinet now to tell the CRTC what specific regulations and conditions of service to apply. So it can now direct the CRTC on how to implement the broadcasting policy, in which case, is it independent, the CRTC? I don't know. I don't think so. And more than that, it can also intervene specifically on individual decisions about online and offline broadcasters. So we now have a cabinet that, that is, is no longer restricted to matters of general policy. We have a cabinet that can actually tell the regulation, we want you to change this regulation to read as follows, or alternatively to say, we don't think that condition of service works for that broadcaster because it's too strong, too weak, the wrong way of looking at it, so therefore we, we direct you to change it. For anyone that's new to this, if they were concerned coming in from what they might have read about this, the case that got us started on this involving Reggio Canada, um, I would imagine that their concerns have really been exacerbated by you know, your your unpacking of where the CRTC, uh, how the CRTC has been conducting itself and the implications of what C11 might mean more broadly for the, the future of, of how this regulator uh, addresses these kinds of issues in the future. Any solutions about how to address this? Is this, is this a matter of saying to perhaps the Senate, um, hey, we'd only, we've only, we're only updating this legislation every three decades, it seems. There's a lot that still needs to be fixed. Um, let's, let's get to work kind of thing in a way that the Heritage Committee uh, was seemingly unwilling to back uh, as part of its review in the House. There are a number of steps that, uh, that the Senate could take and that Parliament overall should take. And perhaps the first one is to take away sections seven sub seven, because it completely guts the independence of the CRTC and makes a mockery of the notion that regulation will be undertaken by an independent authority. Uh, second, I think that all, all determinations, and I'm using that word very carefully for a reason, all determinations of the CRTC should be signed. It would be so nice and I know I'm I'm shouting at the wind, it would be so nice if the CRTC were required under the Broadcasting Act to put the public interest first. There is no such duty. And the result is that you have, of course, those who are most directly affected by the CRTC's work visiting the CRTC most often to set out their views and concerns, and those appear to be the views and concerns that have the most uh, carriage, so to speak within the CRTC's walls. You know, I think that's a perfect place to, to stop and end, end this conversation. You, you've done a great job of highlighting the granular issues that lie behind the case that's attracted all this attention and, and sort of thrown open so many of the problems that exist within today's current CRTC. But uh, even more, once you get past the the, the legal issues, highlighting the the policy question of you know whose interests do you represent and are they well represented and the you know i think the inescapable conclusion that at least as currently structured many of those public interests are not well represented really in many ways ought to be job one at least in my view monica thanks so much for joining me on the podcast well thanks so much for inviting me michael it's a pleasure that's the law bites podcast for this week if you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to LawBytes at PO Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBytesPod 
or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.